Okay, you're listening to Top 5 Books with Shane Coleman. You all know the drill. At this stage, we get a a well-known person to go to their top favourite books of all time. And this week, I'm delighted to say we're joined by someone who you will all know really, really well. He's a a stand-up, he's an improv comedian, he's an actor, he's a performance poet, he's a cartoonist, he's a podcaster. He is uh, Phil Jupiter. Phil, uh, great to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, look, I suppose most people would say when you think of Phil Jupiter, you think comedy, you think music, but I'm guessing as well, books, reading, I'm sure, big part of your life. When you travel around so much, as a go-to kind of totem for stability on the road, books were always kind of there. I mean, in their digital guys these these days, books are, are a much more accessible thing, you know, that notion that you can be on a... On a tra- In fact, I did it the other day. I was on a train and I was thinking about a Shakespeare. I was looking for a Shakespeare quote and I went online and all of his, you just get all of it. Mm. You just get all of it, access all of it through through your phone. The fact that, that that is all available to you. But I think the missing element is I think you get books from people. It's people that recommend have always recommended books to me and or hearing someone discussing a book is always what has turned me on to them. And it's that element, that social element, and that organic way that a book falls into your life in a very real way. You know, they're sort of accidents that become a part of you in a way. Mm-hmm. They're kind of because there's something about that physical act of reading, that holding something, and it's just you and the words, that visual connection, or, you know, if you're blind, that, that sense connection. What it must be like to be able to read Braille. Man. Think of that. Yeah. Think of the, getting your information through that is touch. A, that is a connection to a yeah, book. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Let's start with the first one. It's one people will be very familiar with, but maybe people might be a little bit surprised that you're picking it. Uh, yeah. The World of Pooh by A. A. Mill. Yeah, which is uh, the World of Pooh was the it was the compilation uh, um, that came out, I think, in the late '30s, in the wake of Winnie the Pooh and House and Pooh. It's basically Winnie the Pooh and House at Pooh Corner in one book, and that was the that was the version of Winnie the Pooh that my mum read to me. And Milne, as a kind of starting point for me, what was interesting about that was the way my mum read it, was she did the voices. So she did different voices for all the characters. And so if you think that I'm three years old, I'm seeing that doing funny voices is a interesting thing. To, mm. And my mum's doing it as well. That the, the seed has been planted. This is it. It's my mum. My mum is a... Bit of a straight arrow, my mother. I tell you what, my mum is a frustrated performer because she she auditioned in the fifties for um, Opportunity Knocks with Huey Green. My mum's a really got beautiful voice. My mother, lovely singer, but her doing these weird voices for like Piglet and Kanga, Tigger and Winnie the Pooh. The Winnie the Pooh and Piglet being the principal two. So so I remember, she sort of Winnie the Pooh was like that, and and, and Piglet was sort of yeah. Well, Pooh, you see, the thing is Winnie. The- no, poo was like, and I can still, I could do. That's how she did, and I sound a bit like her as well. And she's got a higher voice. Um, <laughs> but I remember that so vividly. And then the actual stories themselves are so simple because they're really. It's a great way. The thing is, is I, what I would say is that having tried to read Winnie the Pooh to kids, it's actually really difficult because it's not very linear. It's quite complicated and convoluted, and also the stopping between dialogue. Is you have yeah. to really know who it is who's speaking. So okay. you have to. So parents out there, if you want to read Winnie the Pooh to your kids, read it in advance Practice. and possibly make some notes in the margin. <laughs> is all I'm saying because you will make an ass of yourself to your kids, like I did. Because I, I just thought it'd be really easy because Mum used to do it. So is it a? I mean, obviously, look, 
any book that your one of your parents reads, mm. you're going to have a huge attachment to it. And, and as yeah. you say, the seed was sown. Leaving that aside, is, yeah. is it one of the greats, do you think? Oh, no, I think absolutely. Because I, I, the BBC asked, uh, did a thing where they tried to establish what the greatest British book ever was a few years ago. And they got celebrity advocates for various books. And uh, I chose World of Pooh. You know, it did okay in the votes. I think it came fourth, which, bear in mind, you know, it's up against some top-notch sort of literature. But I think that there's something about it. I think it is the best book about the transition from childhood to adulthood. The last chapter of House at Pooh Corner, which is sort of, it's about Christopher Robin basically leaving his childhood behind. It's one of the saddest things you'll ever read as an adult. And the thing is, when I heard it as a kid, it wasn't sad to me because it was just, because I was still a child. But if you read that as an adult no, yeah. and it just reminds you of when you were a child and that you did have to let that go and you suddenly find yourself in this place where you have set aside childish things and you're now in the adult world. I remember I read it out at a book festival because I hadn't read it out in ages. I've not read it out loud anyway. And I started reading it out loud to this crowd and I started crying in the middle of reading it out. This room went incredibly quiet as I had this minor kind of breakdown before. But it's very, very affecting in that way. Well, and actually a number of our previous guests have actually picked that book as well. I'm I'm surprised. I, I read it as a kid, I mm. have to say. It's kind of a book I had forgotten. But, I mean, look, the way you talk about it, it's... Uh... The language. The language is extraordinary. Milne, I mean, the thing is as well is, I mean, he was, he was principally a poet, Milne. Yeah. You know, and also the thing is, as well, is is our image of Winnie the Pooh has been so kind of bowdlerized in a way by by Disney. You know, Disney now own the rights to it, and so there's a very different and much more kind of simplistic version of Pooh that people will have grown up with, and mm. it's not the little yellow bear. It's those scratchy shepherd drawings. I did get to go to the. There's an archive. There's an E. H. Shepherd archive at the University of Surrey in Guildford, and they're basically, it's a room about the size of this studio that's got all of Shepard's drawings in it. I held a piece of paper once that had the original drawing. And one side, it had a drawing of um, Eeyore by the stick house that he builds in the winter mm. uh, that falls over. And then around the other side, it's Winnie the Pooh with some honeypots. And they are drawings from the two different books. And I'm like, why is he drawn on two bits of paper? And I went, well, they, you couldn't get paper in the 1920s. It was scarce after the First World War. It wasn't easy to get paper. Wow. And so they were economic so with their you paper. Don't think about so he did two drawings on one bit of And this guy, this stuff, these original drawings, they're just invaluable. What was your mum's Eeyore voice? Eeyore <laughs> was like that. <laughs> oh, well, I suppose if you... Well, if you... She sounded... Yeah, it's there. Eeyore was like that. That's it. Which is weird because there was a mate of mine's mum that sounded that. I always, oh, I know, used to call her Eeyore. That's very, very uncharitable of me. <laughs> very <I know>. uncharitable. <laughs> Listen, let's get on to your, your next choice. You mentioned your mum auditioning for Opportunity Knocks. Yeah, yeah. Your next choice is somebody who made their name or who sprang to fame on Opportunity Knocks. And yeah. then, like, it's an extraordinary story. And I'm old enough to remember her being on Opportunity Knocks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking about Pam Ayers. Yeah. And you've picked out specifically some of me poetry. Yeah. Pam Ayers was a former RAF. I don't know if she became an officer, but she worked for the RAF. She was a forces girl. And Left I school think early. She, and She yeah. sort of served overseas. And then she, she just came to prominence through Opportunity Knocks. But it was this just very, very simple, easy, simple poetry. 
I mean, there was just something about it. There was something charming about her delivery as well. What I realised was, in watching Pam Ayres, was that when you're on stage, you can be yourself, but like yourself through an amp is what you are. You're just literally doing yourself through a couple of effects pedals. It's like you're almost being yourself, but a version of it. Yeah. That you will allow to share with an audience. And because I could... This woman is obviously incredibly bright, really brilliant at using language. She wrote an absolutely lovely uh, radio sitcom as well, which was very, very funny that used to be on BBC Radio 2. The image was of this kind of floral frock-wearing yokel. And she had that really strong accent as well. And she did do... The way she spoke... Hello! And she never shrunk away from her original voice. And I suppose, you know... When you hear her interviewed, you realise that she just had a kind of public speaking version of the voice, but the accent was actually purely her. And there was just something really charming about it. And the poetry is for the performance as well, but I think it's just it makes me smile. There's better poetry, there's funnier poetry, but no one is Pam Ayres. That's that interesting she, thing. You know? well, no, Anna, I suppose trying to describe her maybe to people, maybe the younger listeners who, who aren't yeah, really yeah. aware of her, it was so accessible. Are people, were the literary types, were they quite snobbish towards her or was there a wide No, acceptance? I think the thing is, is because she came through on like a talent show like Opportunity Knocks, I think she just, and, and the thing is, well, she was doing poetry. So it's, it's an arena where, you know, you, if you either sing a song or you dance or you show one of the big showy skills. You know, those, those shows are designed for people that will dazzle. And here comes this woman who used to sit on a chair to read them as well. She'd sit on a chair. Hello. You know, oh, I wish I looked after my teeth. And it's just ordinary human concerns. I mean, poetry in its purest sense, and its most beautiful sense, that's the brilliant thing about it, is you can be analytical, and you can look at the symbolism of poetry, and you can kind of get really in deep, and there's Yeats, and there's, you know, T.S. Eliot, and there's all that kind of stuff going on. But its simplest form, it still appeals. Language, again, this is coming to language again. It's the shape of words, the bounce of words, appeals. And when, when they are performed, it's like you give them flight, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I suppose it's, I can't read Pamela's poetry without doing her voice in my head. Yeah, yeah, which is an incredible tribute to her, isn't it? Yeah, Just oh, yeah, the absolutely. honesty of yeah, her. Yeah, of yeah, what yeah, she, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm curious, because you would have been, say, maybe, what, 14 or so when she was on? Yeah, right about that, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, you're you're no stranger to doing parody and stuff. And, yeah. and she, was that what it appealed to you about her? I think it was, firstly, she was a woman that was doing it. Mm. And even at that time, you know, the uh, entertainment, uh, women were in the 70s, you know, look back at that time, women were adornment. They yeah. were... The Dick Emery show. They were, you know, uh, they yeah, were yeah. the sidekick. They were the busty sidekick. They were the straight person in the joke set up. They were the hectoring wife in the sketch. You know, they were never front and centre and saying the funny stuff. Pam Ayers, in a kind of a real sense, was one of the first kind of women I saw you know, front and centre, and, and it was all her own stuff. You know, she was she was giving... I mean, for me to be sitting here saying, you know, Pam Ayres is an important poet and feminist. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a way, you know, but it was it was because she was going counter to the grain of what I was seeing on television. And and that is what pulled me in, I suppose, at first. And I think I'm right in saying, like yourself, she started off in the civil service as well. But again, yeah, civil service into, into yeah, and she was in the forces as yeah. well. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. good stuff. Um, some of me poetry, Pam Ayres, is uh, Phil Jupiter, who is our guest. That's his second choice in his top five books. Let's get to your third choice. A lot of people listening here will go, Dada, yeah, that's a really nice red wine. I really like it. Completely unaware, I don't know if you get it in the UK, but yeah. it's, a, it's a quite a popular wine here. Completely unaware that there is this incredible art, yeah. that art, I suppose, about nearly 100 years ago at this stage that yeah. it started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and your book is Data, Art and Anti-Art by Hans Richter. It's it's kind of a documentary style. Yeah, of, uh, basically, um, the Dada art movement started with uh, Cabaret Voltaire in 1916 in um, Zurich. Was it kind of the, am I oversimplifying, was it kind of the punk rock I suppose, of, well, of the art? Well, the thing is, I think what, what happened through reading this book is I realised that every movement is like the punk rock. The thing is, is that punk rock just sort of resonated with us because it was pop music and so it was just had a much, much bigger platform than the world of art. Yeah. These different movements in art have been going on all the time. Before... The Dadaists, there were the Italian futurists, you know. And before the Italian futurists, you know, I mean, in, in parallel with them, there were the Fauvists. And then in parallel with the Dadaists, there were the Cubists. Mm. And all these different art movements that came along. And it's it's gangs of artists would kind of meet and would have fellow feeling and would... But there's something about this particular book and this account of it. Hans Richter was one of the artists. This is why I like it. I've re- I read a lot of books about art. And a lot of them are couched in a language that I really can't get my head around. Mm. But Richter was there. And so what you're dealing with then is a guy giving his account at the time. And it's the veracity of his claims could be challenged. But what is interesting is that in later years, he did go to some of the other people involved in some of the incidents he discusses in the book and asks what their recollection of it was. And as an account of... What people were up to during an important moment in art, because Dada basically led to surrealism. And without surrealism, you don't have Salvador Dali, you don't have most 20th century cinema playing with the visualise it does. You don't have any Monty Python. You don't have Terry Gilliam. You, you don't have the line, Mighty you? Boosh. You don't have Eddie Izzard. You don't have that ability to let the mind go, bring some conscious stuff that normal societal rules would sit on, and to challenge the establishment. That's what I like about it. And that's what's punk rock about Dada. Mm. Some of the accounts that he has, because they would have these salon evenings. So Cabaret Voltaire was this thing that they set up. There was Jean Arp. Hugo Ball, uh, Max Ernst were Dadaists. All these artists doing these things. Hugo Ball would do these poems that would go like na 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 ba 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 na 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 ba 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 ga 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 like sound poems. And they would do these gigs where people would do that kind of thing. A guy would stand there like holding, <laughs> um, smashing mugs, whatever. They would do this stuff. They would read these statements out, telling the audience that they were stupid, you know. And there's one account of an event that Cabaret Voltaire had where, and it's really interesting because it's someone's journal account from the night. It goes, uh, 
Many of the audience, many of the audience at the interval became so enraged that they tore banisters out of the stairwell and chased us from the building. That is like punk rock then, yeah. But this is it, is the reaction of the viewing public to what Dada was doing was was one of anger Mm. at what they were doing, that they were chances. But what they're playing with is ideas and perception. And what I like was that it is Richter is telling the story. I mean, was it incredibly self-indulgent? I mean, there must have been an element. Well, I think that all art is to a certain extent. You have to because you're doing it when I do art. I'm doing it for me, but it's something that other people can look at. It's When I do collage or when I draw or when I used to do my cartoons, I was ostensibly doing them for me, but I knew that they... Other people are going to see them at some point, yeah, yeah. and that's the point of it. I don't, you know, ultimately I don't care what other people think of them because I'm doing it for me, you know. And um, was it? And we're going to be talking about a, a punk rock book in a moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, what, yeah. Was is it a kind of a spicy read? Is there is there really racy stories in it? Or did they kind of live very hedonistic lifestyles? No, you would imagine that. I was expecting there would be some of that, but there's no talk of. I mean, it's like you got to lose the trek, drank himself to death. Uh, Van Gogh perished in a asylum. You know, he wasn't as I don't think. Bankoff was as mad as people made him out to be. He was just poor and really, really beset by circumstances. The Dardais, there's no kind of, oh, we were doing... It's not like the hippie era. This is not like hate Ashbury transposed to Zurich in, in 1916. This is just this movement of people. I mean, what's interesting is the way that they fractured and started bickering with each other, which starts about halfway through the book, they start arguing with each other. Yeah. And that is magnificent. What's lovely is Richter, to give him his due, he gives everybody a really fair kind of account of what was going on. And it's that first-person account of someone who was there is what is really... I found it a great book. And it's not written in that very, very flowery, intellectual, you know, kind of art theory language. You know, there are some brilliant books about art. You know, John Berger's Ways of Seeing, I, you know, is just an amazing book about that sort of way that you see art. But this, as an account of someone that was there, going through what was... You know, I think one of the most important art movements of the 20th century. And all of that going on, and lest we forget, and that's the thing is as well that kept coming into my head, is this is all happening in the middle of the First World War. Oh, yeah, that is the backdrop to it. Right, you know, honestly, 200 miles west of where these people were having banisters thrown at them. Which adds to those surreal... People were dying in mud. Millions of men were dying in mud. You know, and women as well. Which, at the same time, is somehow... Ludicrous and ridiculous. I know. Somehow appropriate. So while you're reading it, you're thinking, what are these idiots? You know, but there is all about response. And that's the interesting thing is now I'm reading, I'm currently reading about the abstract expressionists. So Rothko and Pollock and people like that, you know, their response and de Kooning, their response to what was going on post Second World War. So abstract expressionism is late 30s through till. Well, just about the 70s. They just about made it there, Mm. yeah. The backdrop to that is the Second World War and then Korea and then Vietnam, you know. The book I'm reading about abstract expressionism is a pain in the hole. (laughs) It's driving (laughs) me up To use an artistic term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry to use that art language with you. (laughs) Sounds absolutely fascinating. Data, art and anti-art by Hans Richter. Let's get to your your fourth choice, Phil. Uh, You've gone for sort of more of a... Potboiler, is that a fair description of it for your, your fourth choice, The Hunter by Richard Stark? I think around about when I was 22, a friend of mine got me into Raymond Chandler. And again, there's a guy who he can tell a story, he's got a turn of phrase, and the world he's talking about is so compelling. 
and his focal character in in the books, the um, Philip Marlowe, the detective, is so. He's just an ordinary bloke who's a detective. There's nothing florid. It's not not that Mickey Spillane kind of yeah tough guy. They're, they're yeah. not hard bitten. He is tough, Marlowe, but he's not tough for the sake of it. He's tough when he needs to be tough, and that's he's never the the aggressor, you know, in situations. He's, he reacts to circumstances forced upon him, and the language of Marlowe and that was great. And then I was visiting Belfast, and I was uh, there is an amazing crime bookshop in Belfast, run by a lovely man called David Torrens, called No Alibis, near the Botanic Gardens. If it wasn't Ian Rankin, it was Mark Billingham told me about this place. So you must go. I think it was Billingham. So you must go to No Alibis and, and go see David. And I went in. We got chatting, and he's a guy who, if you go in there and you're hanging about, if you're in there, you know the way you go in a bookshop and you're hanging around in a bookshop for a long while? If you go in No Alibis and you're hanging about for a long while, eventually Torrens will say to you, would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> and th- that is a shop. <laughs> that is it. We we pinned the kettle on. Would you like a cup of tea? And um, so he made me a cup of tea and we're chatting away. And I said, you know what? And this is one of the things I like is one of my favorite things to do in life now is when I go to a restaurant and there's if you go in somewhere and you get chatting and you like the person, you get chit chatting with them. And there's a guy, funny enough, there's a guy called David that runs a restaurant near the brick called the dogs. And I go in there and the waitress comes up and goes, uh, what would you like from the menu? And I went, uh, Tell David that I'm here and I'd like some lunch. And that's what I say. Is, okay. is tell David that I'll have whatever he Proper whatever trust he likes. between the yeah. customer and... And the... I was getting on so well with other David, um, Belfast David, in No Alibis. I said, pick me three books. And he went, right. And, back, and he, he was so... Oh, yeah. And he gave me an amazing book that I think... Oh, was it M, M16 by Pascal... Is it Pascal Garnier? A bleak dark oh my god a french i can't i hesitate to call it a crime novel it's a french story about a serial killer which is just grim but he also gave me the hunter by richard stark mm. richard stark is the pen name oh come on of yeah. donald westlake oh well done donald westlake it. it's the pen name it's a pen name donald westlake it was a, a crime novelist uh, in america he just I don't know why it was, but he just started writing grittier stuff under a different name, and it was a lot shorter. And The Hunter was made into the film that many of you will know out there with Lee Marvin called Point Blank. Point Blank, yeah. John Boorman, yeah. Yeah, course, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is basically Parker is the... I say hero, Parker is a professional criminal. And I use the term professional in its purest sense. The economy of the way that this man operates. He's a robber. He's a thief. That's what he does. He's not a murderer. He's not a mugger. He is a thief. But if you get in his way, you will be Perish. in trouble. Yeah, yeah. And it's just about how he, and this it's, and you will know the story, he gets involved, him and his girlfriend and a friend are going to pull off a very simple little heist and get themselves a lot of money. And the girlfriend and the mate, Parker's girlfriend has been cheating with the mate on him and they kill him, but they don't kill him. And he just he's goes looking, looking for, for them. And, he, and he's sort of not really looking for revenge. He's Where's his money? He wants his money. But the story goes, where the story goes on from there is extraordinary. And it's just him. And this is what I mean by professional. He wants his money. I want my money. And that's all he is. And he goes through this crime syndicate called The Organisation. And he, he just wants his money. And he just keeps going through it. And it becomes very funny. The way that it's... I just would you stop mucking me around? I want my money. 
And it's just the way that this organisation... Well, we can't give you your money. Look, he... took my. That's my money that he bought his way into your organisation with, and I want it. And there's about 20 Parker novels, and they get better and better with each reading. And in terms... I don't normally like an anti-hero, but he's so... The way that he talks to... the way that he, There's a brilliant thing where he talks about how you speak to criminals. That image of um, bank robbers when they're shouting at the... Do this, do that. When he's talking to someone who he's robbing, he goes, right, I'm robbing you now, so what you need to know is that if you do... You, now, sh- calm down, you're fine. Are you OK? Would you like a glass of water? <laughs> now, so if you... If you give me any trouble, I'll have to hurt you, and I absolutely don't want to do that. If you give me any trouble whatsoever, I'm just going to have to hurt you. It's not, I don't want to, but I'm going to have to. And it's just, the logic, it's so cold. It's, what's more chilling is how calm he is when yeah. he's talking to people. And he's actually very pleasant. When he's robbing people, he's so ordinary, and this happens in later books. But that as a starting point, and that as a book to read on its own, is one of the, and his language. As Parker, as women saw him passing them, his veins like whipcords on his hands, which hung loosely at his side. He made women sigh inside. Their darkest thoughts being the thought of him falling on them in the night like a tree. Wow. It's just absolute, his language. I mean, I think every man would like to Ch- have that celebration. Chandler's, <laughs> Chandler's got a great turn of phrase, yeah. but he's got such a minimal Stark. When he writes a Stark, it's cut to the bone. They're great. And they're the best capable. Turner kind of. Oh yeah, yeah man, yeah. Um, man, yeah. And they're short. They're not long. They're borderline novellas. Okay, that's, like, that's the first book for my holiday sorted. Oh man, honestly, and seriously, then you'll be on to the outfit, and you'll be on to the rest of them, and they're great. They're really, really good. Good, brilliant. Let's get to your last choice. Our, our guest, uh, Phil Jupitus. Previously, he's picked uh, the World of Pooh by A. M. Mill, uh, some of me poetry by Pam Ayres, Dada Art and Anti Art by Hans Richter, and just there we were talking about the Hunter with Richard Stark. Now, your fifth choice. I have to say, when I saw the choice, I went, "Yeah, very." Phil Jupiter's. Tell us what your final choice is. <laughs> it is. I never remember the order of the. Is it boys, boys, boys? What is it? It's close, close, close. close. Music, 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 music. Boys, boys, boys. boys, boys. boys. By Viv Albertine from the Slits. Yeah. Viv Albertine from the Slits, who was the guitar player in the Slits, the first female punk band in the UK to really get any traction. This is back in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 She was um, her and Ari, who was a crazy German girl formed uh, the slits with um tessa tessa ari viv i can't remember who they had a oh anyway so they they basically they went out on the road uh with the clash they used to open for the clash Mm. and it's just this story of how a girl sort of living this art school life and is a bit bored gets drawn into what was, in terms of music, one of the most important movements of the 20th century, which is the second wave of punk, as I call it, the UK punk. Because mm. punk rock was sort of it was Sam Sham and the Pharaohs, and it was kind of off the back of that box set, uh, Nuggets. That was sort of the first wave of punk, that kind of garage band, psychedelia and stuff like that. But punk as we know it, as with the Sex Pistols and the Clash and Buzzcocks and, and the Damned, and the Stranglers that came out of the kind of ashes of pub rock is extraordinary. And her story, just that story of how she she came out of it. And it, what it is, is it's a biography that takes in, 
it's amazing because the clothes, clothes, clothes bit is quite important to her as well. And she talks about it. She beautifully describes the sort of clothes she was wearing. Well, it's such a part of punk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, she did work for Malcolm and your woman in um, Sex. You know, they used to hang out with um, Vivian Westwood. Westwood. Yeah. So used to work, she, she used to work with Vivian Westwood, and Malcolm, and used to sort of they they wear their clothes and things. But also, they would kind of, you know. They'd get a staple gun and a bin liner, and they'd make something to yeah, wear on they, stage. They probably weren't night. buying the stuff in Vivian Westwood's yeah. shop because I imagine they, that was quite expensive. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. But they, there were times when they would get access to stuff. But basically, they, it was a very DIY ethos. Kind of like Molly Ringwald in Pretty in Pink. I suppose, kind of yeah, yeah. She just had this way about it. But also, so this is going on. You're reading about that. But then she's forming who were, I think, the slits are the most underrated of well, all the gonna, punk I mean, bands. Uh, Chrissy Hind was in it, was she? Was she involved? No, Chrissy's with... sort of in on the uh, scene because Chrissy was a music journalist at the time, okay. so she was covering it. Sorry. So okay. they would, they would, and Chrissy was hanging around down at the Vortex and the Roxy and all of those places that where they would go. There was this sort of this punk sort of circuit of gigs that they would do. Oh, were they any good? I think the Slits are the most underrated band of punk. I think they're fantastic. Their debut album, Cut, is I think. Just absolutely beautiful piece of work. Minimal, sparse. I mean, the precursor to that whole 1984 shoegazy indie sound, the slits were doing seven years before. Really? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, completely. You've got groups like the Prefects and the Raincoats and then on to bands, you know, still going now like the Nightingales. That kind of sparse. All I ever ask about, about bands is they mean what they're doing yeah rather than they're doing it because they want to do it i want them it's the wanting to do it i like that to be on the back burner i like the need this is all we do this is what we do yeah and we mean it that's what i like so yes. there's a group Not group a around girl. today like the lovely eggs the lovely eggs who are a husband and wife duo they mean it the nightingales who i went to see that's the gig i saw most recently the nightingales mean it that's all I ever ask of my groups is when you see a group up there that's just enjoying the adulation and creating an event, I'm yeah. like, yeah, but do you mean it or are you doing it? Yeah. Like, it's finding it very easy to... It's funny, it's funny to say because I saw Paul McCartney a few years yeah. ago playing and he was leaving, he left the stage and he soaked up every second of it. And I was looking at him thinking, he must have done this mm. 10,000 times before, but he, but think, he meant it. He I really think there did. becomes a point where... You're aware of what you mean to people. Yeah. And I think that's it. Whereas what I like is a band who don't care what they mean to people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I quite like the Manic Street Preachers no encore thing. I really, really? like that. Yeah. And to say the Nightingales don't do encores because it's like, what? No, we've done the show. What? They, yeah. It's just like yeah. they're quite bemused. This is how it works. When people are going, what? Yeah. No, yeah, we, yeah. Okay. we're done now. Okay. You know, I'm presuming given the era that we're in, does yeah. you know, Sid Vicious is in there, Mick yeah. Jones, people. Yeah. Like, oh, she, well, I mean, she, she went, went out with Mick. She Jones. went out yeah, with Mick. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And it goes beyond into sort of her personal life as well. And sort of what happens when you're there and you're in that scene, and then as that ebbs away, about what you make of your own life. You know, I mean, she became a mother as well, and kind of sort of realigned her life, and then started doing other things. But she, I mean, still making great music, still gigging. But that as a, that as a book, and what I liked about it was it's a book that I could buy it and read and then give to my daughters because 
that as an when, ex- when they reach a certain age because I'm assuming unlike the, oh, the, the data uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that was actually sex and drugs and all that in this one oh yeah no there's plenty of that but I mean yeah. my daughters are 24 and yeah, 26 okay, so, so that's, that's <laughs> but no I'm, you know the thing is is I, I think it is a really really important book for dads to read because it's her story as a woman of that transitionary period that difficult there's a time I know there's fathers listening to this now who've got the teenage daughters who are maybe you know 12 into 13 and they might be troublesome already and a little bit back chatty and that and your relationship with them is becoming a bit tense strained strained read the Viv Albertine book just and it's like dispatches from the other side it's like climbing into a teenage girl's head and knowing what she's thinking of now, knowing where her head's at. And it's just, I think, more information that we can get yeah, and can be and can get in into our heads. I mean, now, I mean, I think the job is someone's got to write a book about being a dad and what you go through looking at all that happening because, well, I'm just saying that maybe I could. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We can, and we can add author to uh, comedian, um, actor, performance poet, cartoonist and podcaster and soon to be parenting author as well. Why not? Why not? If that Dr. Spock made a pretty penny out of it in the 70s, I think I'd catch up with it. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, listen, just before I let you go, I mean, look, you're someone who's on tour a lot, travelling yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Do you always have a stack of books? Is it always now on, on a, no, your hardback? Um, I've in my pocket right now. There you go. Ab- he's the abstract expressionism. That's the yeah. elliptical and impenetrable David M. Pham's abstract expressionism. The thing is, is, is what you can see here is I make notes in the margin of where I don't I understand yeah. words and points that I think are important and so forth. What I do now is because I just realise that it's important to get what you can out of a book. I, um, I'm really looking forward to reading art and anti-art again, but like more slowly and like really kind of making notes of things because when a book speaks to you like that, it's this, I mean, it's it's great and, and I can't criticise Anfam for his passion about abstract expressionism, but it's just that he's writing about it in academic terms. Mm. And I think that that is what turns off people about art. When you sit someone down and you explain what Rothko was kind of go, well, look, here's the thing is, here's the background. You've got the Vietnam War and you've got a guy who can do normal figurative art, but he's now thinking about mood and texture. It's not about what is represented. It is about the thing itself, the surface that he is presenting to you. It's about moods. It's about emotions. It's about thought. And so those big... The Rothko room at the Tate Modern, I think, is in artistic terms, although the execution is completely different, but emotionally affects me more than the Sistine Chapel, and I've been to both. Wow. Okay. That's pretty extraordinary. I also love the fact you came in here with the book yeah, literally no, so, stuffed up your jumper. No, I, do, I tend to have a book with me. or If, if it wasn't here, it would have been out in the bag. But I'm also reading some of E.B. White's uh, writings for The New Yorker at the minute as well. E.B. White. Again, I just keep thinking of books I wish that I recommended now. Chandler, E.B.Y., all the ones we didn't do today, ladies and gentlemen. And Charlie Gillett, Sounds of the City, about music, if you like music. you know. Okay. Next week, Phil Jupiter's second top five books. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, uh, just to recount uh, Phil Jupiter's choices, uh, The World of Pooh by A.A. Milne, Some of Me Poetry by Pam Ayres, Dada Art and Anti-Art Hans Richter, The Hunter by Richard Stark, and Close, 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 Music, 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 Boys, 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 I think that's in the right yeah. order, by Viv Albertine. Phil Jupiter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, sure. Thanks very much. Yes. Thank you. And thank you for listening to another episode of Top 5 Books. Lots more interesting guests and book recommendations 
notifications in your podcast feed if you're subscribed or following us on your podcast player. So if you're listening on iTunes, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to the podcast. You might even give us a rating uh, if you've indeed enjoyed any of what you've heard. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Chains Top 5 Books.